God Save the People. On this episode, we're airing a conversation that happened about a month ago between me and Brene Brown, the incredible social worker and academic who helps us think about shame, vulnerability, and guilt in her work. She's the fifth most watched TED Talk of all time. And in this conversation, we talk about the intersection of that work and justice and race. There is something seductive about criticism. And people think that that's the contribution, like that my contribution is the pylon. My contribution is to make fun of people who are trying but getting pushed down. Um, that, and that is such a safe way to move through the world right now, especially. And people don't understand that joy is the most vulnerable emotion that we experience. Um, far more vulnerable than fear or shame. We're terrified of joy because when we let ourselves feel joy, we're so afraid we'll get sucker punched by pain. And so what we do when something joyful comes along is we dress rehearse tragedy or we diminish it. Also, it's the news with me, Clint and Sam. Before we start though, like I'm always mindful that like our work is to find the gift. And the other day, I had to wait a really long time to, to go into this thing. And, and while I was waiting, I actually met an incredible young man who was like doing really dope work. And like, because I had to wait for so long, he and I had like such a dope conversation. I'll never forget him. We become friends, we'll stay in touch. And that like, I tell myself in the hardest moments or the moments when I'm most frustrated that I just haven't found the gift yet. Part of our work in the tough times and in the joyous times is to like find the gift and know that like when we haven't found it sometimes like that means that we just haven't thought deeply enough about being open to the gift but there have been so many situations where I'm like what is going on like why is this happening and then I look back and I'm like there was a gift right there and I just didn't see it so find the gift make sure that you make yourself open to it and that you can receive it it's the news this is Samuel Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Hi, hi, hi. And this is DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. The only thing that I want to tell all the people is that Black Panther, uh, we can't talk enough about it, and it is quick, quickly approaching uh, $1 billion uh, in terms of revenue globally, which is a astonishing number. And, and it's just, you know, it's funny because I, there was... Obviously, opening weekend, there's so so much excitement, but but really, like the weekend after that, and this past weekend, like places are continuing to sell out. Like movie theaters are continuing to sell out, and uh, my parents tried to go, and they couldn't. They had to go to a matinee because all the evening showings were sold out. So, the excitement of this movie is uh, is pretty amazing, and how it's continuing to sustain itself, sort of long after the initial the initial excitement when the the release happened a few weeks ago. All right, so my piece of news is coming from South Africa, where the South African parliament uh, just approved a motion seeking to change the national constitution to allow land expropriation without compensation. Uh, so this is, you know, we're coming on, I mean, it's been over two decades since the fall of apartheid in South Africa, uh, the white supremacist regime that was in power there for generations and a number of measures have been implemented uh, under Mandela and then under subsequent leadership to improve and reduce some of the racial disparities uh, over there. And this is, has to do with land. So land is, is one of those big remaining uh, disparities in South Africa, which, by the way, ha has the most inequality of any other country in the world right now. 
in South Africa, whites are 8% of the population and own 72% of the farmland. And so, you know, even after apartheid, there are these huge racial disparities, land just being one of them. And this is uh, a move by the African National Congress, as well as the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is another party there, uh, to redress that by redistributing some of that land to black uh, folks in South Africa. And it's been met with, you know, a, a range of different responses, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, but, you know, it's just important to note that this is something that is not yet uh, completed. It is a motion to address this, but the actual constitution has not been amended yet. Uh, and that is expected to happen if it does happen uh, by August. Yeah. So I lived in South Africa uh, the year after I graduated from college and I lived in Johannesburg and it's a uh, a remarkable, remarkable place. People talk about Cape Town all the time, but uh, but Joburg, in my mind, is is the sort of hidden gem. Um, it's not really hidden, but but it, it is a an underappreciated place with regard to folks who are who are visiting this country. Obviously, not to people who are living there. But one of the things that I thought was most fascinating when I lived in South Africa was how the sort of nature of political discourse was still and the sort of the political temperature was still so deeply sort of informed and almost saturated by the the sort of residue of apartheid. I, I think that we forget, I mean, like 1991, I think 1991 to 1993 was the process of the, the national government at that point r- repealing the sort of legislation that made apartheid what it was. And the thing I think we forget is like how recent that was, right? That was less than... That was just only about 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago. And and so you have an entire generation of folks and set more than one generation of folks whose political sensibilities are deeply informed by having grown up in in like a literal apartheid state and and having watched the process over decades of 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 the white minority, um, you know, plundering and stealing and. Uh, taking both political and economic resources from native tribes and different folks in South Africa um, and who had to stand by and watch it. And, and that it was done through not simply uh, the government saying, we're going to take your land, but like through violence, right? I think that's part of the the thing that we forget is that this was the process of colonialism and the process of plunder is one that is that necessitates violence. And so people were killed in the process of, of these resources being being stripped away from these communities. So this has been brought up before uh, through through Parliament and through through different leaders in South Africa, uh, and and it has not always resulted in actual change. Um, so it'll be interesting to to see what happens. You know, I think I'm very curious about the the process. Uh, I'm very curious to see what the sort of plan is in terms of like the ANC and the, and the EFF, what their plan is in terms of what this would look like logistically. Uh, there is no doubt that historical amends need to be made. Um, and I'm curious what, uh, what they imagine as the process of making these amends will be in a way that, uh, ultimately is most beneficial to the people whose, whose land was stolen and, and the generations of folks who, um, were who had like financial stability stripped away from them. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, Clint. I was in Cape Town for six months uh, in 2012, and I remember, you know, there were people, you know, just speaking to how recent all of this was, 
you know, there are people who are, who we talked to who had their homes like destroyed, bulldozed, and who were forcibly removed and relocated to, you know, the, the townships there, which were the you know, segregated uh, areas, which were essentially in the desert there. They moved people forcibly. They, you know, tore down entire neighborhoods that were mixed neighborhoods, uh, sent all of the people of color, black people and uh, colored people, who was, who, which is like a, a, another ethnicity there, uh, and moved them all to, you know, the middle of the desert with no resources, far away from the city center, uh, forcibly, right, with bulldozers and, you know, the military, police, all of them just removing people. And you could see that experience. People were telling, you know, how when they were kids, they remember this happening. They remember all of their belongings getting uh, either destroyed or, you know, forgotten and thrown away. And, you know, people deserve justice. And I think a lot of what gets lost in this is the sort of fear is white fear about, you know, what would equity actually look like in a context where, you know, white landowners didn't own the vast majority of land in, in South Africa. Uh, but we forget about, you know, what does justice actually look like in a context where people have experienced these harms and have still not really been fully uh, repaid or, or compensated for for the harms that they they witnessed and experienced. So I'm curious to see how that plays out in South Africa and, you know, what that means for other countries as well. You know, we talk about South Africa and the extreme inequality there, but I was struck by many of the parallels between uh, the racial inequity in South Africa and racial inequity in the United States and indeed in, in the Americas writ large. And if you look at some of the data here, it is, you know, white landowners own 96% of uh, agricultural land in the United States, 98% of all of the acres of agricultural land, farmland. So, you know, the disparities are arguably just as stark uh, in the United States or almost as stark. And so, you know, the questions need to be asked about, you know, what is, you know, is that equitable? Is that just what needs to be done? I mean, it can't be a situation where literally all of the farmland in the United States is owned by one group, uh, especially as the, the country becomes more diverse. And so, you know, we have to ask these questions and figure out what types of uh, reforms and solutions can help address that. I've been on a lot of calls recently about reparations and closing the racial wealth gap. And I didn't know that reparations in this country, in the United States, is actually, is actually polling higher uh, amongst white people than it's ever polled in the history of the country or the history of polling, which is sort of interesting. We have already talked about the need for some sort of repair that like there was harm done. And, and what you find is that there are people who are like, I believe in justice. And then you're like, well, how do we fix the deep disparities? It's like white people didn't work for their wealth. It was literally like Clint said, like taken through violence and extraction and like all these other things that had a ripple effect on people. I think the people are always worried that, or like one of the critiques of uh, reparations that looks like this is that because white people have the capital, uh, that they will, under the threat of having it taken back or redistributed, that they'll like leave the country and put the country into economic despair as a way to scare people. But it's like, there are ways that we can think about this in a way that don't destroy the economy, but do set people up so they actually have assets and they build wealth. So for me, really quickly, I just kind of wanted to mention that there, again, amid the chaos, there are some really great things happening on a state-by-state -state level and, and in Washington state, some really, really wonderful progressive 
uh, causes are, are getting a lot of traction. And so this past week, uh, four pro-voter measures were passed in, in Washington state, which included the Washington Voting Rights Act, same-day registration, pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds, uh, and automatic voter registration. Um, and so Washington is really sort of at the forefront of progressive voting rights causes and, and making sure that uh, the democratic process and the electoral process is open to as many folks as possible. And we know that this is incredibly important for getting young people to vote, for getting um, people living in poverty to vote, for getting uh, folks from marginalized communities um, and black and brown communities to vote. For example, North Carolina started same-day registration in 2007. And so while African-American voters made up 22% of the state's general electorate, they made up 35% of same-day registrants in the state. And that number increased to 41% in the 2012 election, right? And so, you know, I think there's also, you know, methodologically, there's, we can't discount the fact that Barack Obama was on the the ballot. And so I think that that plays a role in, in thinking about these things. But even with that said, um, we know that, you know, same-day registration, automatic voter registration, um, pre-registering 16 and 17-year-olds, and all of these different things, having having elections on weekends, increase voter turnout in, in pretty profound ways and from communities who have historically been and, and continue to be in a contemporary context or pushed away from from access and opportunities to, to voting. Yeah. And, you know, in Michigan, something similar is happening where they have a ballot initiative. They're collecting signatures right now to put a measure on the ballot this November that would include automatic voter registration, same-day voting, uh, and a number of other measures that make it easier to vote. And so, you know, there are many states that are doing this right now. Uh, It is key, especially in states like Michigan and and others, you know, a state that Trump won by less than 11,000 votes. Um, You know, these measures to reverse some of the voter suppression and other measures that have been put in place that made it harder to vote can actually make the difference uh, in the election and, and, you know, restore a democracy uh, in states like North Carolina and others that uh, completely uh, have been working to prevent people from voting for quite some time. My news is about uh, Kentucky's Child Bride Bill, uh, and the article is called Kentucky's Child Bride Bill Stalls as Groups Fight to Let 13-Year-Olds Win. So essentially, there's a bill to make 18 years old the legal age for marriage in Kentucky, but it's stalled in the state Senate because of what the opponents of this bill are calling parents' rights. And they think that parents, not the government, not judges, uh, make the best decisions for kids, even if they are 13 years old getting married to people. Obviously, people are like, if a girl's pregnant at 13, that that was statutory rape. If she's pregnant by uh, like somebody over 18, and there are a lot of people who are pushing and advocating for 18 being the legal age limit because they know that kids that young can't make uh, sound decisions as adults and that we don't let them make decisions about a host of things. But there are groups that are lobbying in what they call parents' rights. So right now in uh, Kentucky, it is currently teens under 18 in Kentucky can marry at 16 or 17 with the parents' permission. Teens under 16 can marry with the judge's permission in case of a pregnancy. And what people against it are saying that, like, judges make poor decisions and that parents would actually make the best decisions. What the advocates for the law are saying is that, like, there's just no reason why somebody who's 13 years old or 14 years old should be able to legally get married at all. What I didn't know upon reading this was that Kentucky has the third highest rate of child marriages behind Texas, which is number one, and Florida is number two. So the other thing that was interesting was the decline over time in child marriages. So in the article, it says in 2000, there were 
1,250 child marriages in Kentucky, and last year there were 217. So there has been a, a pretty dramatic decline in the number of child marriages in Kentucky. And I'm just wondering, you know, this is an issue that I don't know that much about. Like, I didn't know this was so prevalent in in Kentucky and other places, but it is interesting to see that it is declining. And I'm wondering, you know, what are the policies or other sort of social factors that are contributing to that decline? First of all, it's kind of wild to me that judges are approving marriages between people who are younger than, who are 15 or younger, who are pregnant. Uh, and second, it is also wild that when you look at some of the groups that are opposing uh, the attempt to raise the age for, for a marriage, uh, many of those groups are anti-abortion groups. So like, I don't know, I don't know where, like why they're, they're in this fight in particular, but it is interesting that they essentially are advocating for children uh, and, and folks who are minors, like not having the right uh, to make decisions about, uh, you know, their pregnancy, but at the same time that their parents should have the ability and this judge should have the ability to make decisions about their marriage when they are pregnant. Uh, so it's just a weird uh, like situation. And I don't know, like, I don't know how they defend uh, what they're doing, but it, it is an issue that definitely needs uh, a lot of uh, investigation and, and and some sort of accountability from the people who are pushing this, some sort of argument, because I I can't really understand, you know, where they're coming from uh, with allowing marriages this young. Yeah, I had no idea, honestly, how how prevalent this issue was. Um, you know, I read that in the last fifteen years, more than two hundred seven thousand minors have become legally wed in the United States. Um, many of them even marrying below the age of consent in their respective states. Um, and it's interesting because. Child marriage is one of those things that that can be misunderstood and almost caricatured as as simply an issue in uh, in different you know countries across across the global south or what folks call developing countries and 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 even in the context of the United States, people can think about child marriages as being something that only happens in immigrant populations or sort of uh, isolationist religious sects. Um, but but I think this is an example of how that's not true at all, right? I, you have a lot of folks in Kentucky who uh, are several generations of American, are members of not sort of off the road religious organizations um, who who are engaged in this practice, and and it's really unsettling to to think about how how young girls don't have consent over their bodies, uh, and and it can often be coerced both by the man. Um, uh, and attempting to marry them and by their families and by a system that really sort of strips away any pretense of choice. And, and I think that, you know, the idea that a, a 13 or 14 year old has the ability to decide that they want to be sexually engaged with, uh, with an adult man is, is something that, uh, I find, uh, personally pretty troubling. It's like when you hear child marriages, it, it is not as clear as, you know, what we're actually talking about here, which is overwhelmingly uh, adult men marrying underage women or underage girls, right? And, and looking at the statistics, since 2000, you know, 11,000 uh, of these child marriages have happened, 84% involved an older man marrying an underage girl. So, like, that's what we're talking about here. And I think, like, it's almost like we need a, a new term that is very clearly 
referencing that that's what's going on because even you know the term child marriage is like I I hear you know maybe it is two teenagers getting married or you know something else but it but that's like not actually what's happening here this is as you were saying Clint this is a coercive situation a situation uh, where people are taking advantage of young girls and and that's what legislation should seek to to address I had never even imagined that I'd be entertaining a parents' rights argument like this idea that the that parents know best. So if a 13-year-old wants to get married, if they want to marry off a 13-year-old, then the parents just like this is about parents' rights. And you're like, but what about protecting the kids? And like we should make sure that there's a system and structure set up to protect kids and not just rely on parents to make these random decisions in the absence of any standards. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Potting the People's coming. And now my conversation with Brene Brown. We're so glad you're here. I'm Amy Butler. I'm the senior minister, and this is such a dream come true tonight. So great to see your faces and to welcome those of you who are joining us via live stream in many states around the country, hoping to expand this conversation beyond these walls. I'm standing right here where 50 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his speech, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. In that speech, he called out our country for the three evils of militarism and racism and poverty. He had the courage to stand up and have a hard conversation, and that's why we're here tonight. Thank you for having the courage to show up. And so with that, I'd like to welcome to the Riverside Church, DeRay McKesson and Brene Brown. So I have some Kleenex here, so I think we're going to cry. That's what that means, right? Already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you all have never met each other in person before tonight. Tonight, tonight. Is that right? What do you think? It looks exactly like she does uh, on TV. Same. (laughs) It's the best, you know? So this started with a tweet that you put up last August. You tweeted, some people live to see other people fail, and that's sad. I've noticed that some people are just so negative. Find some joy, folks. Did that work? (laughs) You know, and then she responded. I was like, look at that. Brene Brown, she uh, tweeted, that's painfully true. I guess joy just takes more vulnerability than cruelty does. So why did you tweet that and why did you respond? Take us through your conversation. Yeah, you know, I am, I'm nervous in this moment that there are people who are seduced by pessimism, that like this idea that it'll never get better, that the, people say things like the system is working exactly like it was designed as like a nihilistic thing. And when I hear statements like that, I'm actually reminded that like people made this and because people made it, people can make something different. Like that's actually a hopeful thing for me. But the way that pessimism shows up, and I'd love to, to hear you push on this if you disagree, is that for so many people, it like pre-contaminates the solution, right? That like, if you think that everything's flawed, then like, why come up with solutions? Because everything is already flawed. And I think that that's really seductive in this moment. So when I tweeted that, I was just like, wow, like all these people are just so negative about what's going on. And I think about hope is the idea that our tomorrows can be better than our todays. And I believe that. And that's what led to that tweet. Yeah, I agree. You can... uh preach from that pulpit sometime. Yeah. I'll come. I'll come and give you one of these. Um, Yeah, I follow you, and I really respect and appreciate your work, and I saw it, and I have to be honest, I'm not on Twitter 
very much anymore. Um, it's just not good for me, um, to be honest with you. It's, it's just too hard. And so, but I saw that and I thought that's important. And I thought, you know, people think they're being, there is something seductive about criticism. And people think that that's the contribution, like that my contribution is the pylon. My contribution is to make fun of people who are trying but getting pushed down. Um, that, and that is such a safe way to move through the world right now, especially. And people don't understand that joy is the most vulnerable emotion that we experience. Um, far more vulnerable than fear or shame. We're terrified of joy because when we let ourselves feel joy, we're so afraid we'll get sucker punched by pain. And so what we do when something joyful comes along is we dress rehearse tragedy or we diminish it. And so when you said that, I just said, yeah, I think people are turning towards cynicism and pessimism because it's safe. Like this is, this is, you know, this is the world of problems we live in right now. How brave is it to be cynical about them? It's pretty easy. Um, but to hold on to joy and love and hope in these moments, that to me is courage. And so I was just, I thought it was a really important thing, so I jumped in. And though we haven't, though today's the first time we met in person, we yeah. did have like a, we FaceTimed or Skyped? I think we Skyped, we Skyped. yeah. And we talked about what does courage look like around race? Yeah. Like what does it mean that there's so many people who are interested in these conversations but like don't have the language or the tools, like they, they don't know? When I think about courage, I think about this notion that like, it's not about getting rid of the fear, it's about making sure the fear doesn't overpower the other emotions, or like fear is like a human, sort yeah. of natural thing. How have you seen talking to white people about race, how have you seen courage show up or not show up? You know, it's funny because this last book tour that I did where I talk about why, where I, I talk about the dangers of dehumanization and how rampant that is right now. And if we look back in history, how every genocide in recorded history started with dehumanization. Mm -hmm. Then I talk about the importance of rehumanization campaigns and I talk about Black Lives Matter as a really important effort. And it's the first time in my career ever where people get up and walk out of really? events they paid to be there. Um, like just get up? They just get up. They just get up and walk out. White folks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, um, and so I go through this whole thing where the first three or four dates I cried, um, then I, that's my thing is I swing from like sad to pissed off. Right. So then I was like, I told my team, I'm going to get a shirt that says, bye Felicia. And I'm just going to be like this <laughs> when I walk out. Um, but my team told me I wasn't allowed to do that. Um, and now I've just got to a place where that's okay. So I think, can I, can I, I'll be honest with you. Be honest with all of us. This is not going to go over well, so I'm just <laughs> telling you that we're in church, so be kind. Um, in conservative cities, fewer people walked out than in progressive cities. Really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, because I say this thing during Braving the Wilderness, which is, if you're offended 
when people denigrate and humiliate and belittle Obama's daughters, you know, then you should feel the same way when they attack Trump's children. Like, dehumanization is dehumanization. It's not what side of politics are you on, but what side are hum of humanity are you on? Um, and we're going to get to a point where we've dehumanized people to such a degree um, that we can do anything to them. Hmm. And I think it's hard for progressive to be held accountable sometimes for our own dehumanizing, I put myself in there, our own dehumanizing behavior sometimes. Because they feel like they are, that they're normally morally right and that they're on the, yeah. the right side I think of the justice. I think not all, but some, I think that's some of it. And I think the conversation around privilege hmm. is hard for people because there's no way in my experience, again, you may disagree, and I would love to hear what you think about this. I mean, the story I make up is there's no way for me to talk about white supremacy and race and do it perfectly. I've got, I'm blind to my own privilege. I don't, I have blind spots, I have corners. So when I do it, invariably, people speak up and say, did you think about this? You should be careful with this language here. And so I think for a lot of people, I'm not going to take a chance and speak up about race because I'm going to get criticized and ridiculed and clobbered by social media, by people. And then my response is, but that's the definition of privilege. Hmm. That I'm going to choose not to talk about it because it could be uncomfortable and I could get criticized. Right. Seems like a really privileged viewpoint to me. Right? right? I, mean, no, I think you're right. It makes me think of two things. One is I've been struggling with what courage looks like in terms of how people talk about speaking truth to power. Mm -hmm. Now, we met with Obama twice. The longest meeting he had in the White House was with us. And what's funny about meeting with President Obama, besides that White House was way more functional than this current White House, is, you know, people had a lot to say to him before he walked into the room, you know? Everybody's like, I'm going to tell President Obama. We walk into the room and people are like, thank you so much for letting And you're like, what happened? You're like, what? I thought you were coming here to, like, tell a man what's real. You know, we're, we're the protesters, right? So we believe that, like, the truth should be present in every room. And that it's not always, uh, I'm not always the best person to keep the truth in the room. That, like, part of being at the table is to keep the door open. Like, that was real for us. But it was interesting to see people struggle with, like, being honest in spaces where they really respected the person. And at one point in the first meeting with Obama, it was so uncomfortable. He got praised so much that literally he looks over and he's like, I appreciate it, but can we please, like, stop with this and talk about the issues, right? And there's, like, this awkward moment where you're like, what is going on, right? So I think about that. The second one I think about privilege, and we talked about this on Skype, is that there are a lot of people who won't own the fact that their individual hard work is not what, like, led them to have success, right? That, like, it's the master confusion around the term yeah, privilege. Yeah, people are like, but I worked really hard. It's like, yeah, like, you... You aren't solely the reason why, like, white people have wealth. You know, you think about the racial wealth gap. In 2053, the median wealth for black people will be zero dollars. That is wild, right? And white people have wealth not because they worked really hard, but the government literally created programs that, like, gave white people wealth. And I've seen people struggle with, like, that understanding that they benefit from something much larger than them as, like, an individual person. And that has been, like, hard to help people break through without getting to what you write about so much, which is this immense sense of guilt. Yeah, and I, 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 I wish it was guilt. I think it's, it's not guilt. It, I think it's shame. Interesting. For people that have not read the books, how would you talk about the difference between shame and guilt? 
So there's a huge difference between shame and guilt. So shame and guilt, two, two self-conscious affects. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is a focus on self. So guilt is, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. Mm. Um, and so it's, it seems like a, like a linguistic pet peeve kind of thing, but it's not because if you look at the research, and we have about 60 years of research now, shame is highly correlated with violence, aggression, suicide, um, bullying, eating disorders, depression, and guilt is inversely correlated with those things, meaning the more you can rely on guilt self-talk, I'm not stupid, but that choice was stupid, mm. the better off you are in those dangerous behaviors. And so what I think is paralyzing, so a couple things, I mean, I'm a social worker. Any social workers here? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like, it's like, welcome to social work. Here are your books. Here's your ruler. Here's class one on systemic racism and sexism. Here's oppression 101. And here's why you're privileged. Like, that's like our training. And so I forget when I'm talking to people like my, parents, you know, my dad or my, you know, friends, when I talk about privilege, their first response is, don't tell me about privilege. I had a dad who left home when I was two. I was beat till I was 15. Then I was out on my own. I worked, you know, and if you can't, hear that and start where they are, which is another social work axiom, you're not going to get there. But I have never in my career, I've never not been able to get there if I can say, I get that. I mean, but then simple, simple things like the famous um, unpacking the backpack of privilege, yep. those things like, so your daughter's got prom and she cut her elbow and you go to CVS or, you know, and you need to get a Band-Aid. Can you find one that matches her skin color? Well, no. You've won a doll. Can you find? No. You get pulled over. How sure you are it's for speeding, not because of your race. And then they start thinking, oh, uh, oh. 90% of them say, oh, 10% of them say that's bullshit, but I don't think we need the 10 of them to move the whole thing. Right. I just think we need the 90 of them. Really, I just think we need a critical mass, really. I mean, honestly. Where do people go after that moment when they're like, okay, I get it. Like I benefit from a system bigger than me personally. I think that's the, that's the key. Right. Yeah. And then, and then how have you seen, and I ask because white people are a little different around me about this stuff. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so I'm curious, <laughs> what, what's next after that? The question, what's next? Okay. Like, what do I do with this? Yeah. So what do I do with that? How do I make a difference? Um, I think that's the big question about what's next. And then they start thinking in their heads, this is gonna push against my family, this is gonna push against my friends, this is gonna turn my life upside down, this sounds really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, and then we go to the Martin Luther King quote, the Klan is scary, but the, mo you know, the moderate progressive white person, yeah, really let's, dangerous. Let's, let's talk about that. You know, you... <laughs> I'm ready to hear Go what ahead. white people are doing. I don't want to represent white people. I'm just saying. <laughs> like, I'm saying the people I've talked to, the people I've worked with, I think the shame part is it's hard. It's just hard. Like, I'm getting, like, anxious about it because when I think about it for me and, like, around sexism, like, I don't feel like explaining this shit to you anymore. Do you I know that, that feeling? Every day. Yeah. Every day. Right. <laughs> right. I'm like... Yes, right. It's just like, I don't, I don't feel like explaining this to you anymore. So go buy a book. Or Google. Uh, or Google or it. Google. Go to therapy. And, yeah, go to therapy. 
But I worry about that a lot. It keeps me up at night. Like, I worry about, it's not working for us not to care anymore, not to care about how people got there or how they're going to move. I don't think it's working. And so I think we have to figure out when we have the conversation, what is the what's next? And my usually what's next is ask more questions and listen more than you talk. And we think about what it means to be an ally versus what it means to be an accomplice, this idea of proximity, right? That proximity. Like, that they're, when we think about allies, that they appreciate you from a distance. They're like, I hope you're okay. Da -da -da. <laughs> Go. Right? They're like, be free. And you're like, what? Uh, <laughs> and accomplices stand with you, right? Like accomplices yeah. are like right there with you yeah. in the moment saying like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the brunt too, right? That I'm as implicated as you are in these yeah. systems and structures. And I do think this issue of proximity is hard for people because they care. They're like hearts in the right place. But then when they have to put anything on the line, they're like, they're like a little dicey about it. And I've seen people really struggle with, with like the systemic nature. You know, like we did this thing on drug-free school zones, which are all bad. And like drug-free school zones are a nightmare. And people were just like, you know, I get that it's bad, but you shouldn't sell drugs. And you're like, that's like not the point. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> the system should be fair. And we met with a pretty senior um, elected official during the... Uh, presidential campaign, and one of the things this person said was in the middle of the meeting, they go, but there are just more black drug dealers than white drug dealers, and everybody in the room is silent, right? Because we're just like, there has to be another sentence, right? Like, this can't be. <laughs> like, this, and this is the mythology from which people operate, but no, that just right. ended there, right? And yeah. You've been, like, in Congress for a long time, right? So they say that, and we're just like, we're waiting. We're like, okay, ready for the next sentence, right? And that is the whole thing, and we're just like, what is... You're like, you've been in office longer than I've been alive, and you are still like peddling this pathology that is really dangerous, right? But that person would tell you their heart's in the right place, they care about, you know, all the issues that matter. But it's like, if you actually believe that there are just more black drug dealers and white drug dealers, then that bleeds into the way that you think about your work in the world. And that's like a real challenge. Well, that, that I mean, I think that mythology shapes drug policy. Yeah. I mean, I, and so many other policies. Yeah. I mean, that is. That is not even like a, boy, that's dangerous, because if this, then that, that is what we see. I mean, that's what's happening, right? But what do you do with people who, like, if you talk to this person, they would convince you that their heart was in the right place. And if we hadn't set up that conversation to get that to come out of that person, another thing, uh, we had another conversation, and they were like, well, I support a job bill that'll have 70 million jobs. And we're like, that's dope. And we said, well, how will that go to people of color or poor people? And they were just like, well, there are just more of them. And you're like, what? Like that, <laughs> we wish that that's how the government worked, right? Like just because there are more poor people that like they just got government assistance. And like that's just not how systems are set up. So I've seen some really well-meaning people struggle with the idea part of race, like putting it, putting the rubber to the road. And I haven't figured out how to always get to that. The people will give us lip service, like a super care, down for the people. But then when you get to like the issues, it's like dicey. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you get to where everyone's trying to go without people actually getting to that really painful, shaming moment where they say, I hold deeply racist ideas. Got it. Do you think we name that for them in the moment? Like, how does that work? I'm just trying to I, I don't think I'd do that approach. <laughs> you tell me. Um, I don't know that I have the answer for sure. I, I think that... 
Guilt is a motivator, not shame. Shame, sh guilt is a pretty uh, adaptive affect. Like, guilt not is... Not a motivator. Motivator is the wrong word. No, motivators are good, but it's okay. guilt... I mean, I don't want everybody to go out and guilt people, but... Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. Guilt is a very adaptive social feeling. It's cognitive dissonance. Guilt is, I've done something or failed to do something that doesn't align with my values. Okay. It's not an assault on who I am. Shame, which is where racism, homophobia, heterosexism, that's where people think... I, I don't, I'm not buying into false narratives. I'm a bad person because you could ha you could, you could, I believe, set people up with lie detector tests and say, who are pushing through building, supporting systemic oppression and racism in policy and say, are you a racist? And they would say no and pass. Right. I mean, and therein lies the problem that Enter Donald Trump. Well, enter, enter not just, right. not just, but an entire administration. Yes. Um, that not only has brought those beliefs into the highest office in this country, but given cover to some very dangerous people. Um, and when you give cover to people whose goal is to perpetrate, perpetrate violence, against people. I mean, I make up, and I don't know this is true, that most people, white Americans, were shocked about the level of hatred, violence, and racism that existed but has been undercover for the last 10 years. But they voted for him. Right, but I make up, I make up that they could pretend because we had an African-American president that that was not real. Now, if you woke up every morning and faced that as a person of color, I can't imagine that you could make that up because your, your safety would depend on knowing that those people existed in the world. Yes. So I make up that, and again, because I don't, I don't have data on it, I make up that people are seeing for the very first time evidence of what is really and truly in people's hearts but people have been afraid to act on because we've had a different administration for the last eight years. And I think the go-to emotion for people is to justify it because it's so painful. Justify the racism. Justify the racism. Think, well, Charlottesville wasn't exactly what we saw. It must be the media. Um, justify the killing of innocent African-Americans by police. I think they, they really get to this place where this can't be real. This is not where we live. And I really think, I don't know how you say that to people. I don't know how, if, they, if it's in front of their eyes, I don't know how you get people to understand it's true and real. I don't know, I, you know, I would push a little bit. I, he was racist during the campaign, you know? And people still supported it. Oh, yeah. And, and the evangelical whites for, I mean, like, yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't know if people are, like, just seeing it for the first time. I do think that they feel sort of safer expressing those beliefs because it is being, um, there's cover at the highest levels, and, like, that is, is hard for people of color. And we've not had the luxury, you're right, of waking up in a world where we don't think about race and racism, right? That, like, we've always right. had to think about it for our safety. 
I worry though, specifically about white women. It's like you're like he's doing bad things that are implicating you too, and you still will choose to support it. Yeah. To like protect whiteness, even though like you're being negatively impacted. And that is something that like I'm trying to figure out what the root of that is. And it could be like you said, this sort of the confrontation with shame, right? That people are realizing that they hold deeply racist beliefs and that is leading to something. What is it? Is it leading to a, a double down on it because they won't like process the racism? I think there's a part, I think part of it's a double down and I think part of it is at least in evangelical America, I think a lot of women, I always call it like the, the, the drippings. Like my grandmother used to fry bacon and stuff and have a little can where she put the drippings from the bacon grease. Like I think a lot of women and white women are used to the only access to power they have is the drippings they can catch Hmm. from male power. So they pledge allegiance to the patriarchy hardcore. Yes, yes. To maintain the only to maintain the only type of power that they are used to? The only type of power they're used to is stand next to the guy who's holding it. That's interesting. And smile. So you think that that is actually, and And smile, smile. right? And smile, yeah. That's leading to like white women voting for, supporting him even though it's against their own interests. Yeah, because I don't know that they're defining their interests like you're defining their interests. That's interesting, okay, okay. How do you get people to see what's invisible for them and easier for them not to see? Like how, how, I mean, I think this is the question. Like, how do you get people, all of us, everyone, to see what's invisible to them when seeing it is for sure going to be an invitation to pain? And the other question is, in my work, I find that people who subscribe to a belief that power is finite are completely unwilling to see it. Like, if you believe that power is like pizza, like there's eight slices, so if I give you some, I'll have less, as opposed to, I don't, I don't subscribe to that belief about power. Um, I believe power over is finite, but I, but I don't, I think power over is really dangerous, and I think a lot of what we see right now is kind of the white man's last stand for power over. Mm-hmm. Um, I like power over. Well, yeah, because I think there's different kinds of power. There's power between or power with. And I think we see, I think we're in a lasting moment for power over. That's interesting. Um, But how do we make people see what's visible if they, if you know the moment it comes into focus for them, it's going to bring pain? Is proximity not a part of that? Say again? Proximity. This idea of like how close you are to the issue. I think I did a prison visit and there were a lot of like really sort of wealthy white people. And what was fascinating about it is that they, most people there did it as like a favor to the woman who's running this program. Like they, there's an entrepreneur program in California where they teach entrepreneurship in prison. And at the end of the day, you saw all these people who like had never, they'd only thought about prison sort of abstractly, yeah. right? And then they left and were like, I get it. They were like, I get it. I, like I get that these people have done bad things or like, They've done things that are morally questionable, some of them, but like they're not bad people, but it took them being like so close to it that they like were confronted with it in a way that wasn't abstract, that wasn't sort of a CNN special. It was like, I'm, I met somebody who committed murder 20 years ago and I like saw them as a person, right? You, you looked them in their eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You totally. I mean, that's why I think when I talk about 
you know, people are hard to hate close up, so move in. I think proximity, that's like the first, the Braving the Wilderness first chapter, people are hard to hate close up, move in. Proximity is everything. Um, it's really hard to hate people close up. It's really hard to ignore people's pain close up. Um, so the way that we have dealt with that is we become the most sorted and separated humans in U.S. history. Do you think people are choosing distance as a way to... Oh, oh my God. Yes. You were about to say something else. Yes, I was. <laughs> um, but... We're in church. Um, but... I, yes, I mean, we just have the data that show that, shows that, that over the last 20 years, we, we've become more ideologically and politically sorted than in human history. So we have, we have, to your point about proximity being part of the solution, we have literally done the opposite. In 1976, fewer than 25% of counties delivered landslides for the presidential candidates. And in 2016, over 80% of U.S. counties delivered landslides. Like, we vote by, I mean, we live with, worship with, shop with, send our kids to school with people who think and believe like us. Like, whatever the opposite of proximity is. We're doing that. That's what we're doing. So if we think that proximity, which I think it is, that's why I think people are hard to hate and move close up. You know what I think? As I'm listening to us talk about this, discomfort is a, our capacity for discomfort just sucks collectively. Can we, can we build that? Is discomfort like a skill that you can yes. you get better at? It's a total skill, but it is, our, our capacity for discomfort is, the, is a huge barrier to what we're talking about. Like we choose, courage, we choose comfort over courage. I'm interested when you talk about that pessimism is easy, that joy is hard, like what that, what that means a little better? Because I think about in the social, it is seductive. You know, people use Audre Lorde and say things like, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And I'm not sure they read the whole speech that like, she wasn't actually being nihilistic. She's saying like an ideology of white supremacy will never undo an ideology of white supremacy, right? That we'll need to create something wholly different. She wasn't saying we're doomed. And like- Oh, well, I think that speech is the opposite, right? What yeah. she was saying was like- She's not saying we're doomed. Right, yeah, yes, I thought you were saying she's saying we're doomed. No, I was she's like, not saying yeah, we're doomed. Yeah, no, yeah, right. I think she's but saying people, it's super hopeful. Yeah, that, yeah, no, yes. They're like, well, yeah. this is all like an yeah. enterprise that can go nowhere. And that's, that does seem safe and it is like, it's like what I call the rhetorical revolutionaries, right? Like it gives them like ammo to give a dope speech and you're like, well, what are we gonna do? And they're like, well, the master's tools will never, and you're like, this isn't helpful, right? Um, but I'd love to hear you like, I'm trying to understand what you said at the beginning, this idea that joy is hard. Like, what does that mean, especially when we think about justice work and, and race? It's so funny that you bring up that quote, because I'm, like, obsessed with that quote right now. See? We're... I know we're in a Vulcan mind meld. Um, <laughs> I'm obsessed with it because I've been thinking a lot about the Me Too movement. And, I, and, and also, I mean, race, all of these things that we're fighting for, I think, across multiple oppressions, like, that's how I feel about shame. I think shame is a tool of oppression. It's not going to be the tool we bring use to, like, if you say the master's tool will not dismantle the master's house, shame, humiliation, and belittling are the tools of oppression. They will not be the tools of social justice. 
Like, I won't, I mean, I won't participate in them because they've already taken enough from me. And to be on the receiving end of shame is hard enough, but to be a perpetrator of shame also takes something from your soul. So I won't use that as a social justice tool. I think the joy piece is, joy is super vulnerable. Is there always an easy test I do? How many parents in the audience? How many of you have ever stood over your child while he or she is sleeping and thought, I love you like I didn't know was possible? And then in that moment, dress rehearse something tragic happening to your child. (laughs) It's about 95% of parents. How many of you have ever had like a really great thing happen to you? And then in the moment of the bliss and happiness, you start thinking about what horrible thing's gonna happen now because you're in a joyful place. So why do people do that? People do all that because joy is the most vulnerable of all human emotions. Mm. We're so afraid that if we lean into it, and this is gonna go to a terrible place around activism, so stay with me, but if we lean into it, we're so afraid that it'll get pulled out from underneath our feet and we'll get sucker punched by pain. So that when something joy happens, we start dress rehearsing tragedy and waiting for disaster. And so it's hard. And the only thing that the men and women we've studied, and we just passed 200,000 pieces of data, the only thing men and women who we've studied share in common that really have the capacity to lean fully into joy are people who actively practice gratitude. Interesting. So hard. So then the question becomes this, and this is, I mean, I've had this question with, I did some work with all the female Nobel laureates, and there's a real... No small thing. Well, it, it was because they worked out of University of Houston, where we were, and oh, so wow. it was amazing. Um, and there was a really divided group around, there's no place for joy and gratitude and activism. Hmm. Activism that's the most effective is fueled by rage and anger. And then there are other people who believe that's not sustainable, I can't do that. I agree with that. And so I think there is a question that... I struggle with myself, like how, if I'm going to go on spring break with my kids and my husband, how do I stand there on the beach and think, this is so beautiful and I'm so grateful for this moment when there are Syrian children dying? How do I sit down at a meal and have something when I think people are not eating right now? And so there's a question, I think, where I see activists after activists after activists who become the theoretical activists burn out because they allow themselves no joy in their lives. No gratitude. No, this was a small win. Let's celebrate it. Because the thinking is, we celebrate this small win, people will think we're done. You know, I, people have talked about self-care for the, the last three years, and it never, like I would, you know, I participate in the conversation, but it never really, I never got it until I heard somebody say, you can't pour from an empty cup. Right. And I got it. I was like, I get it, right? that like we have to show up as more than our pain, that like blackness is about more than pain, that our joy has actually been one of our biggest strengths. So I agree with you about that. There's some people whose identity is also rooted in the battle, right? That like without the perpetual battle, they actually don't know. So when the battle goes away and joy might even come up, they're like unmoored. Because I think you're right that like we can't sustain, rage is not sustainable, right? That like rage alone you burn out, you get like tired. It's a great catalyst, but I think it's a sucky life companion. I like that. 
Well, that's it. Make sure that you hit us up. We have some live shows uh, coming up soon in April. Go to cricket.com and you'll see under tours, you'll see where to buy tickets. So do that. Make sure you rate us wherever you get your podcast, and I will see you back here next week.